All right. Yo, I, I just realized, I remember that you can get cold still and still be annoyed with other things besides, uh, besides COVID. And so my family had like some, uh, we've been wearing masks. My family had something come through our house the last week. So don't worry, I'm not bringing the plague. If you hear a lingering cough when I'm preaching, but I am bringing the fire because I have the Bible here, you know what I'm saying? I can't tell you the unique joy that it is for me to come back to this precious church that our family was in that we led for 12 years and to see y'all fighting the good fight of faith, loving Jesus back and loving the world according to his word, which is real love. I've had a lot of time these last few years to, to spend a lot of time with Alberto and to listen to him processing all that's going on in the church, and to see how he approaches everything with patience and peace and wisdom, and not the uh, seemingly requisite anxiety that I see other leaders in his position, or maybe that I've exhibited in the past at times, you know. But to see that is just a huge blessing for me. And I hope that y'all can join me in praying and continuing to pray for rest and peace and power because uh, Alberto and Morgan, his wife Morgan, have just seen baby Elias become big brother to an even babier baby, Sophie. So miraculous rest, hallelujah. Now, if you're here just checking the church out, praise God, thank you for joining us. And I wanna invite you if not compel you to check in, to decide today even maybe, to invest your time and your talent and your treasure here in this church and the relationships in this church and grow with us. And we have so much adventure, so much of the world to take over with the love of Jesus together, amen? So there's connection cards to get connected to our summer nights and our different things that we can have relationship and discipleship together. So I recently got back from a uh, two-week intensive in Manila with 63 other people from 27 different nations for Every Nation Seminary. I'm representing here with the swag, the merch. I got to see different stories of things happening around the world. So I'm going to do things a little bit differently today. Before I preach from Hebrews 13, you can kind of flick to Hebrews 13 in your Bible as I'm sharing these other stories. I'm going to preach from Hebrews 13 in a little bit and then share from some stories from world history, church history, about people daring to obey Hebrews 13. Uh, but I want to actually share some stories from today in, in a similar sense, and then I'm going to pray and jump into Hebrews 13. So these stories, again, The Springs is a part of every nation. Every nation is a global family of churches. And I'm going to share some stories of men and women who consider their identity really wrapped up in yours. And I hope that I can help us to share the same sentiment for them as they have for us. Now, for security reasons, I'm going to step aside here. Maybe the live stream can still see this. We've blurred out some of the faces and changed the names for security reasons. This is a picture I took a few weeks ago at lunch. Now, Sam... We'll call him Sam as the guy with the black jacket, red shirt on the left. He was a famous boxer for Bangladesh, a national boxer for the national team. And then later after his boxing career, he was a businessman and he had gotten sick decades ago and he was dying from his sickness in a hospital in Tokyo. 
until a nurse, a Christian nurse, laid hands on him and prayed for healing and also preached the gospel to him. And so here's what happened. Sam was not only healed by Jesus, but converted by Jesus to himself. And he went back to Manila and went to our school of, uh, of world missions in Manila. And he met Jane sitting there next to him. And they got married and they decided what only people decide to do when they're led by the Holy Spirit. Because people don't just have these thoughts like, let's go back to a dangerous, closed nation like Bangladesh and let's plant a church. So that's what they did. After 10 years, this church had ballooned to over 100 people, which is like a super mega church in Bangladeshi standards. At that point, most of those 100 had been hospitalized at one point or another because of persecution. And when an American pastor saw Sam years later in Manila, they asked, he asked Sam, like, hey, what do you need from us? And Sam said, well, I've been developing some discipleship materials. If you could help me set up a secure website so that these materials can continue to bless us as we grow in case I am killed by authorities, all these other people following Jesus can still have them and spread. Well, for the last over 10 years, the website has been up and five other churches all around Bangladesh are also up and growing in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Uh, Mark, bald guy on the, the right with the, uh, the sweatshirt, blue sweatshirt, he was an Irani who got saved at our Every Nation Church in Dubai. And then he went back to plant a church in Tehran, and he was super bold, super fruitful, and uh, caused, a lot of, caused a lot of good problems. The Revolutionary Guard captured him, tortured him, imprisoned him, and somehow, miraculously, he escaped detention and also escaped the nation of Iran. In the last several years, he's been planting Farsi-speaking church, churches with refugees in Turkey and in France. And with his absence from Iran, one of the people that was a part of that ragtag church that had to be scattered, our friend Nate, who's also in my seminary cohort, he missed our uh, intensive this year because of some visa issues, so he decided to, to do this, plant more secret churches around Iran. This is him. He's actually planted eight or nine secret churches. This is a picture of him leading a secret meeting in the desert bush, and then the next picture is them baptizing those guys. So if you're here today and you're just visiting, we could be patient. We'll get the water out. We have a horse trough here, and it's not salty like the Persian Gulf, so this could be us today. One more picture. This is on the left. This is Luis Asaniero from Peru. God willing, he's going to help me and a few others plant some churches in Mexico City. We're going to be checking something out this year and then Buenos Aires next year. And this is at a significant cost to the church he leads in Lima and a personal cost. To him, it's worth it. The guy next to him, trying his best to pull off a blazer with track pants. That's our friend Shemek. That's Shemek from Krakow, Poland. Now this year, his church has been both traumatized and revitalized by the flood of Ukrainian immigrants into his country from our seven every nation churches, especially in, in Ukraine. It's the mission's opportunity that he says the Polish people, people would never have been ready for or planned for, but God has really pressed on them. And now because of this, God is sending church planning dreams and plans for Russia and all over the Baltics. 
God is good, especially in our difficulty. Now to the right is Ronnie from Uganda. He leads our very first Every Nation Church in all of East Africa. Now he's struggling to keep up with the rapid growth of a revival in Kampala that God decided to break out in the middle of a pandemic. God is wise. He knows better than we do. If you knew the poverty and suffering that on the daily Ronnie faces, you would be shocked to know that his urgent focus is none of that. It's on how he can plant churches in Rwanda and Kenya and how they can send Christians to Sudan and Somalia, whether they're missionaries or martyrs or somewhere in between, just that they would be sent from Uganda to preach Jesus. Now, simply put, these folks don't have the same resources that we have. But to them, it doesn't quite matter because they're super aware of what they do have to offer the nations. And I pray that their example can embolden us as well. Will you pray for me as we prepare for worship in the word of God? Jesus, help us to see what you're doing. Lift our eyes to your glory in the nations and beyond the blindness of our own culture wars. Lord, whatever drives these men and women, it's from you and we want more of you too. You're not calling us to go do big things for you necessarily, but you're calling us right now to trust in your bigness in the nations and in our neighborhoods, in our families with our friends and coworkers. So help us to recommit to following you and trusting your gospel for us and from us. May it come out of our mouths with boldness, come into our hearts with revelation and illumination in the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, can you stand to your feet to honor the reading of God's word? We're in Hebrews 13. I'm going to read verses 7 through 9. Hebrews 13, verses 7 through 9. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods, or we could say external religious rules, strengthened by grace instead. Those other things have not benefited those devoted to them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. It benefits us to devote ourselves not to things, not to religion in a dead sense, but to a person who devoted himself to us by trading his life for our death and going to the cross for us. And because, of he, rose, because he rose from the dead, there's still power available to us that we call grace in the Bible, power available to us to live sanctified and dangerous lives in this world today, not be weighed down by lesser things. Grace strengthens us because 
Jesus is the same. Now, let me confess something about me, nevertheless, about us, that really grieves me, makes me sad. In our culture, whenever we see a a shooting or a tragedy or or maybe a, a triggering debate, whether it's Roe v. Wade or gay marriage or whatever grips us, I notice a frequent tendency in me and in us to sort of kind of enter into the ring of the world's debates and and take up our own argument about diverse and strange teachings that arise. Maybe arguments like verse 9 about rules or foods or just external things. Now, it's not, there's nothing wrong with desiring justice in the earth, but we get into strange and diverse debates about the external things and the content of what we argue about. This is me and this is you too. We argue about those things, but the source, the root, Jesus, the the key that we have, we often omit and it's not helpful. And nevertheless, as for me, as I've watched many of my leaders that, uh, that, that lead me as I follow them, as they follow Christ, especially my pastor, Pastor Morgan, Pastor Steve, one of the leaders in every nation. And as I consider the outcome of, of their way of life, as verse seven says, I watch them as they look upon the tragedies of the world and they, they grieve and they breathe and they pray, and as verse seven declares, they preach the word of God to me. And so it helps me feel compelled to zero in again on verse eight. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, whether you feel this or know this or not, this truth is the most relevant and applicable truth to your life today. Consider all the things that are scheduled in your, that, that might be bringing you anxiety today, financial things, relational things, familial things. This truth is the most relevant and life-shaping truth that can bless you practically today. That regardless of the things that change, the things that I'll worry about today, I'll worry about other things tomorrow. But you know what will be the same tomorrow? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I I feel like I'm preaching right now. Hallelujah. I got to preach in me. The same Jesus who empowered the first century disciples to endure suffering. They endured it. They didn't didn't, uh, get around it, nor did they pretend like it was really fun. Jesus empowered them to endure. This same Jesus has always given miraculous wisdom to the church Wisdom to bring to bear the invisible realities of the kingdom of God, to bring that to bear on the principalities of this world and not fight with weapons of worldly warfare or arguments of worldly consequence. This same Jesus is at work today and not just in Uganda and in Bangladesh. He's here and he's available to us and let us not dare to settle for less than all that Jesus offers us today. Let's not dare just be content with maybe you know, listen, listening to church online and they're just going back to life as we know it or coming to church and just 
going through the motions. Let's read the Bible and allow the Bible to read and redirect us. Amen? So I'm going to share, you, share a series of stories with you from church history and remind us of what can happen when people dare to obey this truth. People that can learn from those ahead of them. What you're going to find that's surprising is that when we see history, we make history. This happens in world history. I'm going to give you a series of steps in world history where people learn from people before them. They, they, they perceive what God's doing in history. And as they perceive it, it changes them and it causes them to make history. And if you dare to believe and be impacted deeply by the word of God, knowing that considering the outcome of the way of life of those who come before us that preach the word of God to us can cause us to be transformed and repeat more viral than any virus or disease. Hallelujah. These people that I'm going to share with you, former generations of people who encountered their own tragedies and difficulties, they breathed in suffering and they breathed out revival. So let me take you to a boat in 1736. And as we consider this boat, I want to ask you a context question. Have you ever been on an airplane and had a thought like, man, if this thing goes down, I've got one minute, maximum two minutes to preach. You've thought that? Okay. It makes two of us probably. Now, regardless of if you've ever entertained these death spiral evangelism fantasies like Christopher and I, the brevity of life is real in the moments of airplane turbulence or like a near car accident, right? We've all felt that. And the situation of comparable consequence from 300 years ago was the dreaded shipwrecked. So, as I said, it's 1736. And John was on his first missionary journey with his brother, Charles. Now, they grew up with a godly Christian heritage, a, a godly grandmother. Now, in this whole story, that, that theme of godly grandmothers is going to be a major theme in world revival. These two brothers had joined a committed discipleship group at Oxford University, and they felt a strong leading to Christian ministry, like they really wanted to do that. John pastored a church in Oxford for almost a decade, and then in his early 30s, he and his brother Charles were like, hey, let's go, uh, let's do some adventuring. Let's go do some church work to the colonists over in America, to missionaries, and even to some Native Americans. So they were just going to, they're going to kind of be uh, some of the church pastors out in the Georgia area. At least that was the plan. But y'all, how often do, uh, do our plans work out just the way that we envision it? Does anyone remember all the way back to the year 2020? <laughs> so in the middle of the Atlantic, John and Charles their ship encountered this ferocious storm and it began to take on water. John describes in his journal that the main bow of the boat even broke in half. This is the point at which one loses one's lunch in one way or another. Scary. In this circumstance, John and Charles were not in the headspace to preach to their sinking compatriots. And I don't think I would be, nor you would be as well. But in the death, fear, silence, they heard singing in a language that sounded like German. Christian hymns that they knew, but this language was different. 
John soon found out that these were Moravian missionaries. And they told John, look, we knew that we wouldn't sink because God told us that we are to preach to the Native Americans. These people had such an impact on John that John started to question whether he even knew God or not before. He, John ended up like going and visiting these people later. Spoiler, the, the ship made it to America. Uh, it's such an impact on him. John says that before this, he knew about God, but this time he felt true devotion to God after encountering these people. Now, I don't think it's good. I think we can, we can go on being sure of our salvation because that, that has more to do with trusting God, what he's done for us. But it's good sometimes to have other people stir you up and make you feel uncomfortable to make you do inventory of your own devotion to this unchanging God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How many of y'all have ever experienced that? Someone else, you got, God puts around you, it's like, man, their, their faith compels me. Well, this is what these Moravians did for John. Years later, he visits them in modern-day Germany uh, to their central European headquarters of, the, of this Moravian church. And what their impact, their relationship had a huge effect on John and his brother Charles. Before his encounter with the Moravians, they were just into Christian ministry. But after, through this relationship, he was devoting himself to the kingdom of Jesus and to world evangelization. Fast forward to today. John and Charles Wesleyan Methodist movement today boasts a membership of over 40.5 million people in 138 countries. And nevertheless, their very real impact on the world today dwarfs even those already huge numbers. So, just who are these Moravians that impacted the Wesleyans? And what can we learn from them? And who else have they affected? Thank you for asking. Let's back up over a decade before the boat incident. Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. Everyone say Zinzendorf. Zinzendorf. Now you've said it. Might be the first time ever. Count Zinzendorf was a high nobleman from the Roman Empire, super mega bougie. His grandmother was a pietist. Uh, she was super formative in his formation in Christianity. Now, how many of y'all, if you stop and think, where would you be without a grandmother's faith in particular? Praise God for how Jesus has used grannies in his kingdom. Thank you, Lord. He, uh, he goes to, to college and joins a pietist movement in the same order of his, uh, his grandmother. And at university, they called this student group, you all ready for this cool name? Anyone who wants to plant a church, this could be a name of your church. The Order of the Grain of the Mustard Seed. Hey, that'd be a weird website, but hey. Then at age 21, he purchased his grandmother's estate. And the next year, 1722, 10 refugees from Moravia, which is modern day Czech Republic, show up at his doorstep of his rich estate. And they ask if they could, could kind of set up some tents on his land, his expansive land. 
these people were persecuted by the Catholic Church in Moravia, Czech Republic at the time. And so they were fleeing where they were coming from and asking for refuge. And it was granted to them by, by Nicholas Zinzendorf. So these 10 people set up camp. And small nugget from church history. Anytime Christians are abruptly forced to change their plans or to scatter, it's almost always been the providential moment at the front end of a great revival. So have we had to change our plans at all in the last few years? I don't know. Y'all, let's not miss the opportunities that God grants us by filling the air with complaints or trying to find the next government official to disparage. Let's see the opportunity that Jesus gives us and let's take it, amen? Five years later, after these first 10, 300 more would join them. And this, if, if, if this is many of y'all's first experience in a diverse church in the United States, the level of diversity of this church in, in, uh, in Zinzendorf's property, this little community that had become a church, was extreme, extreme. They established a little church community that they called Hermhut, which means under the Lord's watch. And how many of y'all know when you get people from very diverse backgrounds, you have some misunderstandings and even some division? I mean, hypothetically, we, we know this. We know that, and this was before social media. So here's what Zinzendorf decided to do. He saw that these precious people that he had a very real connection to, they were living out there and there was some division. He made a decision that effectively is kind of the reverse of the rich young ruler story. He decided to sell his estate and move into Hermhut, set up his own little shack out there with his church. This was one of the most consequential things that we've ever seen. In a tough moment, when it wasn't like a super sweet churchy moment, he wasn't feeling the sweet church vibes, he decided to press in. When division begins to stir with your friends and family and church members, do you tend to pull away or do you draw near? What will drawing near in the future cost you in the days to come? And what price are you willing to pay for church unity? Zinzendorf could have said, Lord, look, I've already given these people my very land and they're just, they're a mess. I, I don't need to give them anything more. And yet he gave everything. How many of y'all know that giving 10% to the church is a faith challenge? I mean, for me, I know, like, that's a tough. Now, for, for you, if you haven't taken that faith leap, it might be a good day to start today because that's hard. However, let's be careful. Let's not think that for those of us giving 10% to the church, that the other 90% is somehow ours. Because Jesus can rightly say, look, I gave everything for you on the cross to purchase you. Your money is mine. Your body is mine. Your identity, mine. I define you. I revive you. I send you. That's the radical message that Zinzendorf believed in this moment, which caused him to buy in because he was reading the same Bible that we read. And this was radical. Zinzendorf and the Moravians started 
a new church in this moment they called Unitas Fratum, brotherly unity. Isn't that a powerful moment? In the midst of division, they named themselves Unity. And on August 23rd, 1727, they started a prayer meeting as a mutual cry for God. God, help us. You know, the most powerful thing you can do sometimes is not to try to fix things, but to cry out to God. God, help me. God, help me reach my friends. God, help me have a better relationship with my children, with my friends, with my mom. God, help me. That's the most powerful thing you can do. But you know why? Because God can help you. Right now, he can help you. They called out to God and they started a prayer meeting on this day. It started for, for a prayer for church unity and it, it ended up being a, a, a Pentecostal revival prayer meeting for world ministry. That prayer meeting never ended for over 100 years. What would become the revival from the Moravians was first a revival in the Moravians. And it was one that required frequent pursuit of God. Y'all, if you want to see miracles happen out there, you need to be willing for the necessary exposure and confession for miracles to happen first in here. Now this gets more radical. A few years later, 1731, Zinzendorf meets a converted former slave from St. Thomas Island. So he had never, he had never heard the gospel before because they had their own special Bible where they cut out most of the New Testament and Old Testament on St. Thomas Island. So, so slaves wouldn't be learning stuff about, you know, freedom and stuff like that. Well, he, this, this former slave from St. Thomas Island becomes, comes to know Jesus. And in Europe, he meets Zinzendorf. Zinzendorf is super compelled by his story. And this guy comes back to the Moravian church and tells them and asks them, can you send missionaries to St. Thomas Island? The Hermhut was, was so compelled by this former slave's story that they decided we're gonna go there. We're gonna send missionaries. The only problem is, after a lot of time thinking about this, the only way that they could get onto St. Thomas Island is if a few of them were to sell themselves into slavery so that they could preach the gospel to everyone else. And that's just what they did. Y'all, this is super radical. And it's super unlike most of the things we ever hear in Western history. But what's sobering is, this is much like what we hear from the Bible in the first few centuries of Christian history. Within 20 years, this one church had sent missionaries virtually everywhere. Now think about the disproportionate nature of the buy-in of this one church of about three to 400 people. By 1742, check out this map. Within decades, Zinzendorf sent missionaries around the globe to Greenland, Lapland, Georgia, Suriname, America's Guinea coast, South Africa, Amsterdam's Jewish Quarter, Algeria, Native North America, Ceylon, Romania, and Constantinople. 70 70 missionaries from a community of fewer than 600, sorry, 600, answered the call. By the time Zinzendorf died, this one church community sent 226 missionaries all around the globe. Dr. William Merle says, the Moravian church movement might not be the largest missionary sending movement in Protestant history, but it very well may be the most consequential. See, the first wave of these missionaries being sent, they impacted John Wesley. And y'all, where would Western history be without the Methodist movement? I think that the liberties and the, the things that we enjoy and maybe take for granted sometimes in our country, we wouldn't be experiencing. 
Y'all, our country has some fundamental flaws. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's good to romanticize American history as if we're God's new Israel or something like that. But on the other hand, let's be reverent to what God has done in our history and know the gift that we steward according to the word of God, the opportunity that we have. If not for revival, what would we be looking at with women's rights, with slavery? We can only wonder. But here's what I don't wonder. I don't wonder whether or not I would have had Josh in a campus ministry preach the gospel to me in the middle of my sin. I'm reverent to the the gift that I've been given and I want God to make my life useful to give it away and me to be used in, in this city and other cities for something much bigger than what my anxiety pulls me to on the daily. These people, I'm gonna share with you one more major domino that falls because it wasn't just the missionaries that went that participated. There were some that stayed back and recorded the stories. I've here a, a periodical from the, the Moravians. They wrote accounts and they, they were writing this and in the second wave of Baptist missionary or, or of uh, Moravian missionaries, they, a, a young Baptist shoemaker got, a, got his hands on, on these stories of these crazy uh, Moravians selling themselves into slavery for the, for the kingdom of God. And this young Baptist shoemaker, William Carey, reads this account, and he's amazed. And he would go on to form the Baptist Missionary Society. See, he was drawn towards the kingdom of God and, and essentially drawn away from his, the indifference of the English Baptists at the time. And this article caused him to, to write his own inquiry to the Baptists. And in it, he says this, he says, see what the Moravians have done. Can we not follow their example? Does that sound like Hebrews 13? Can we not follow their example in, in obedience to our heavenly master, go into all the world to preach to the heathen? His message would be used as a catalyst for what would be known now as the century, the global century of Christian mission with a breadth and an impact that maybe since the first century had not been felt. Let me demonstrate this with some alarming numbers. In 1792, when Carey published his famous manifesto to reach the nations, there were only a few hundred Protestant missionaries in the world. In in 1900, there were over 15,000. So that's like 7,000% growth in a century. That's, That's a lot of growth. Kerry was famous for the following challenge that resonates with us today. He says, attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. Amen? Y'all, Jesus did wonders in the past. He transformed lives and nations. He conquered slavery. He brought Pentecostal revival to more than a billion people in a century. And in Africa alone in the last century, it's gone from 10 million Christians to 600 million Christians. That's what he's done in the past. But y'all, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So let us consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith and not be led away by strange and diverse teachings. Let us be strengthened by the grace of God that is available to us 
today. Would you pray with me?